The Big Dig, brought to you by Build Up and Nayop, is your in-depth podcast covering all things real estate development and construction in and around Boston. On this episode, we have an amazing panel lined up to discuss the revitalization of Worcester, New England's second largest city. A huge part of this resurgence will be the new Polar Park Stadium at the center of the Canal District. Who better to talk about the exciting addition than Dan Ray, Executive VP Real Estate Development and Business Affairs for the Pawtucket Red Sox. Joining the discussion will be Dennis Dowdle, President of Madison Properties and Larry Curtis, President and Managing Partner of Wind Companies, along with Tim Murray from the Worcester Chamber of Commerce and Robert Cox from Bowditch and Dewey. This episode of The Big Dig is brought to you by Bowditch, highly regarded law firm handling sophisticated transactions, challenging litigation, and complex regulatory issues for businesses, families, and institutions throughout Massachusetts, the region, and beyond. And Rockland Trust is a full-service commercial bank headquartered in Massachusetts that offers a wide range of banking, investment, and insurance services to businesses and individuals. And here's Megan, BuildUp's market manager. Hi, it's Megan Doherty from BuildUp, and we're excited to talk today about the ongoing development in Worcester. Let's meet our guests. Dan, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, Dan Ray with the Pawtucket, soon-to-be Worcester Red Sox. I'm Bob Cox. I'm managing partner of Bodich and Dewey, located in Worcester. I'm Dennis Dowdle from Madison Properties, uh, headquartered in Boston, with a big interest in Worcester. Tim Murray, President and CEO of the Worcester Regional Chamber of Commerce. Larry Curtis, President and Managing Partner of Wynn Development, Boston-based developer that's done housing development throughout the state. All right, so let's start by talking about how Worcester was able to make this deal happen and draw uh, the Red Sox away from their home in Rhode Island after so many years. I guess I might be the natural one to start this one. Uh, you know, for us, it was a it was a it was a tough decision and um, a long process. So I think the antecedent was our three years of trying to stay in Rhode Island, um, and we made a commitment um, almost two years ago this month to stay in Rhode Island for 30 years. Um, the legislative process entangled things a bit, and um, we sort of opened ourselves up to inbound inquiries. Um, and Worcester really emerged from an early point. It was, I think, a combination of city leadership, uh, state leadership. The business community's leadership, you know, we met with Tim early in the process. We met with city manager Ed Augustus and Mayor Joe Petty, um, and they really made a convincing pitch for why this location in the Canal District in Worcester um, was the right place for us. And, you know, personally, I grew up in a little town sort of halfway between Boston and Worcester called Sherbourne, um, and I remember going to Worcester Ice Cats games when I was a kid and looking around Worcester and saying, you know, this is a somewhat gritty kind of city. And when I came back three or four years ago to start looking at it again, looking at the work that Tim and others had done to put this city on this upward trajectory, it became very clear this can be a really prosperous long-term home for a baseball team and for a AAA baseball team. So it was really, I think, a confluence of circumstances, good political leadership, uh, the business community supporting us, and an aligned vision that this ballpark um, can be much more than just a ballpark, but it can be really uh, a catalyst um, for growth and development in a city that's already seen quite a bit of growth and development. And the city wanted to put the ore in the water early, um, and it was in December of 2016 on at Toscano's and Charles Street. Uh, city manager and I had a chance to meet with, with Larry and, and, and others just to say, look, as things uh, evolve in, in, in Rhode Island, and there were some signs at that point that there were um, some, some 
things going on that was not probably going to project a, a, a smooth glide path in, in Rhode Island. We wanted to say, hey, listen, if things don't work out in Rhode Island, we want to be uh, first on your phone call list uh, that because we think you know there is a trajectory in the city, but the presence of, of a AAA team with the Red Sox brand could just uh, accelerate things tremendously. And I think also just as Tim said, you know, they reached out to us. They were very persistent. Tim is, you know, charmingly persistent, but they were persistent about checking in, asking us. Even when we were saying, listen, we're not talking right now to places outside of Rhode Island, you know, Tim would still say, give us a call if that time comes. And so when that time came, we were ready to look at other options. Um, but then having a developer at the table like Dennis, who had been working in Worcester for many years, who had local credibility, uh, local bona fides, I think made a huge difference because it wasn't just the city and the team working on this. It was having a developer at the table who could say, here's a vision for how we can make the development part of it work. And working with Dennis's expertise and his team um, has, I think, really been something that brought this all to kind of one neat, tidy package. Dennis, you've been... You've been looking at the Wyman Gordon property long before the mm-hmm. Sox came along. Um, tell us, tell us about that and what you were thinking about it before the Sox came along. So I, I looked at that property first in 2004, and um, at the time, uh, well, I, I came to the conclusion that Wyman Gordon just wasn't ready to part with it at the time. But I, th- I was thinking that uh, historically Worcester has been served. Um, around the perimeter from uh, a lot of services. Just the barriers to entry in the the city center of Worcester are are large because it's very well built out. There's not a lot of big open vacant parcels. You've got train tracks, you've got highways, you've got roads, you've got, you know, rivers, you've got all sorts of of natural barriers that, uh, and so uh, instead of, what I opted to do at the time is buy the 45 acres at, of the old industrial U.S. steel facility along 146, which was just you know, in, under construction at the time. And that's a big part of, I think, what's helped you know, uh, Worcester's rebirth is the, the uh, vehicular connection to the pike up 146. Uh, before 146 was constructed, you'd have to either go up 495 and out 290 if you're coming from Boston, or you go, up, go all the way out to Auburn and backtrack. Um, but now it's much more direct uh, vehicular uh, access into downtown Worcester. You know, we at Wynn like to think we helped prime the pump for all this uh, with uh, doing some development early in the uh, Canal District. And cities grow uh, in, a, in an incremental way, one, uh, one development at a time, one project at a time. And I think once this Canal District had enough critical mass of successful developments, it allowed itself to... Uh, skyrocket from a a development opportunity point of view. And the city is so fortunate uh, uh, that Dennis and Dan and uh, and the team are are coming here because it will further such uh, um, trajectory. And, and, uh, you know, there's a famous movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but I I think Dennis is absolutely right that a big catalyst for the growth and success of the city has been the investments uh, around uh, transportation upgrades. The Route 146 Mass Pike Connector changed the way people gave in, came into the city, made Worcester via automobile a much more convenient place. Going from six to 20 round-trip commuter rail trains between Worcester and Boston being the most utilized line in the MBTA commuter rail system is a part of that. Uh, Massport taking over Worcester Regional Airport with uh, JetBlue flying three flights daily to Orlando, Fort Lauderdale, uh, and New York City. 
uh, American Airlines to Philadelphia and then Delta to Detroit. Uh, those are all things happening, and many of these investments are in close proximity. The canal lofts right behind Union Station that Wynn developed, the canal district, the ballpark, uh, all within close proximity of important transportation options. So how important is the transportation piece to, to your projects? The, the, the rail, uh, 146 you mentioned, um, how important is that for the work that you're doing, Larry, and uh, thinking of the, the um, Much Lincoln, of our Lincoln residents Square. in Worcester and the six developments we've done in Worcester now are coming by automobile. But more and more so, people are making the commute to, uh, to Boston. And when they make that commute to Boston, uh, with traffic these days and uh, yesterday's days and tomorrow's days, uh, the, the uh, rail is increasingly important. So uh, not just Worcester, the uh, cities like Fall River and New Bedford and Lawrence, if we have expanded rail transportation in a successful way, we will get more vibrant growth in these cities. It's plain and simple. You know, there's an article in the paper this week in Boston. They're talking about congestion pricing in Boston, and um, you know, we're, we're doing some research in terms of, you know, anecdotally, um, in, at the morning peak commute going from um, uh, along the Pike, it's uh, right about the Newton Marriott is about the equidistant point if you're going into the Back Bay versus going into Kelly Square, so it's about the same travel time from the Newton Marriott to Kelly Square as it is from the Newton Marriott to Copley Square. That's about nine miles in one direction and about 30 miles in the other direction. But the amount of traffic in Boston is, is uh, growing and will continue to grow. And so the, the, uh, the commuter rail, the, you know, the rail uh, improvements and upgrades, and right now you can get on that eight o'clock train at Union Station and get off of the back base station at nine o'clock. And that, you know, when they increase the frequency of that you know, one hour heart to hub, um, th that's going to be a big uh, selling point. Because the rents in Worcester are about a third of what they are in the new buildings in Boston. Yeah, I know Dennis and Larry can speak more knowledgeably to the impact that transportation has on development. I know from a ball club's perspective, you know, we don't have any doubt that we're going to do really well when it comes to selling uh, you know, tickets and sponsorships and other amenities to Worcesterites, to people in the city, to people right in the outskirts of the city. Um, but our, I think, largest success as a franchise and as a real hub of activity in Worcester will come from our ability to regionalize the team and get people from other areas, not just Worcester proper, not just Shrewsbury, not just the adjacent towns, but, you know, the the, the, the Metro West towns, you know, towns uh, that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being major hubs, but will bring people to games um, at the new ballpark. And I think the transportation corridor from east to west, from Boston all the way to Springfield and getting, you know, much, you know, improved, consistent building on what Tim and, and the administration did and what the Baker Polito administration have done, but creating that sort of, you know, thoroughfare um, and having that beautiful train station as well. I mean, when we saw Union Station the first time, it might be the most beautiful train station in New England. So when you have that within walking distance of your ballpark, if you can make it easy and affordable for people to get from their home in, you know, Framingham or in Natick and get to games uh, at Polar Park in Worcester via the train station, um, that's going to have tremendous implications for our ability to run this ball club. So how far is it from Union Station to the ballpark and then to your development, uh, Dennis? Probably, what, four-tenths of a mile, Dennis, from, if that even, three-tenths, four-tenths of a mile? 
probably about a 10 minute walk. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not a, a, a foreboding walk. The one challenge that is inherent is the fact that it's on the other side of the train tracks. So the canal district is on one side of the train tracks, downtown and the union station spot are on the other side. So there's an underpass that a lot of people would take. Um, and one of the parts of our project, one of the ways um, in which the state and the city have really been helping lead the way is talking about infrastructure um, and things like lighting of the underpass. So people can come in, they can walk under the underpass, they can feel safe, whether it's at six o'clock at night or at 10 o'clock at night after a game where they can walk to the ballpark, have it really be a natural, easy walk to and from um, and get back to the train station and be back home, you know, with your kids by 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. I think it's an hour and a half walk because there's so many bars and restaurants that are attractive <laughs> along the way. No one can resist going into the new establishment. So it's... I think, Larry, you have to go, in a, go into another line of business then. <laughs> bars and restaurants. Um, so, Larry, you touched on uh, earlier how you guys have been in Worcester for quite some time, and you mentioned during the panel that um, throughout your development time that Worcester's been the easiest city to work with. Um, can you expand on that a bit more? Well, it's not a layup in the sense that the city just, uh, you know, hands out building permits at Union Station. There is a public process that does uh, engage in uh, active discussion and dialogue and uh, input to make uh, projects better, and I think uh, it's no coincidence that the developments that have gotten built in the, in the city from the historic developments like we've done at Canal Place, uh, Volk Lofts, and the elderly housing we've done at Coe's Pond and uh, Matheson or what we're doing in other parts of the city are, uh, and others are doing are high-quality developments. Uh, cities can either support development or cities can be obstacles to development. That's kind of a threshold question by which they need to live by. And when they're supporting development, looking to make developers right, not make developers wrong, they get corresponding input and success at the state and federal agencies that so often are involved in these uh, communities. But if the public sentiment is fight, 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 uh, it has a way of being uh, unfortunately contagious. So Worcester is uh, smooth. Worcester uh, gets projects done. And Worcester, uh, you know, I could think of in many another city in Massachusetts and elsewhere in the region that uh, the Red Sox, uh, Pawtucket Red Sox coming to uh, Worcester would be in, uh, if I may, the first inning of discussion, not, uh, not uh, uh, sliding into home plate. And just two examples, I think, that manifest the way of doing, uh, ease of doing business in the city is, uh, first, the city itself, under the leadership of City Manager Augustus and, and the mayor, uh, Joe Petty, have instituted an interdepartmental review team so that when people come forward with projects of any size or significance, they're able to kind of lay it out with all of the important players, uh, as Larry mentioned, you know, code, inspectional services, fire, uh, economic development, all the zoning, planning people, to really try to vet it, anticipate questions so people aren't wasting time. The other piece is the Economic Development Coordinating Council. How do you bring together the public, private sector, institutional players to get behind a project uh, and bring resources to bear, engagement, involvement, uh, just answer questions? And I think that's been an important piece of the puzzle uh, with all the projects that, that we're talking about here, but others as well. Dan, you mentioned to me in our private prep for this, the public-private partnership uh, that you saw here in Worcester. I'd like you to comment on that, but before you get to that, I want to hear 
about which I've read about the 10,000 postcards and what the business community uh, uh, did in order to yeah. to uh, entice you. Yeah, so probably two and a half years ago, um, these postcards just started showing up at McCoy Stadium. And we, at first, we were a little taken aback. On one side of the postcard, there was a picture of this ballpark plopped in the middle of the canal district. <laughs> and on the other side, people would write out their name and their home address. And so I was, you know, kind of the reluctant person who said, okay, I'll, I'll store them thinking, you know, okay, we'll have a few dozen and I'll put it in a folder in my desk. At last count, we were up to about 10,000 postcards. I think we had four mail bins worth of postcards uh, that still sit in my office. And so they're uh, underneath one of my uh, conference room tables and uh, they've been there for two and a half years, but that was really a manifestation of, you know, the grassroots level support that existed in Worcester for this project. Um, When you saw that, that really, in addition to Tim and the political and business leadership coming to us uh, initially was really an eye opener for us. Um, But then to sit in the room with public officials who get it, who understand what these sorts of public-private partnerships can do for a city, for a region, um, was really refreshing. And, you know, we'd been through an odyssey in Pawtucket. Um, We love the Pawtucket mayor. Don Grebian is a great guy. He's, I think, actually very similar to Ed Augustus in the way that he can just cut through issues. Um, But he was, frankly, um, not supported at the state level. And that was in stark contrast to this situation where the state was involved. They clearly delineated between what they could do and what they couldn't do. And then they left us to the city to negotiate our deal. And, you know, I think nowadays, particularly in sports, there is a reflexive instinct to criticize any deal that involves public funding with a sports venue. And I think in some cases it's justified when you just write a blank check and you say to a ball club, here you go, you know, name your price, put the ballpark down, we'll pay for everything. I think that's a fair criticism that ballparks and ball clubs will take. Um, But there are also examples nowadays of these well-constructed, smart deals like this one that I would say um, are based on, you know, real development instinct, uh, you know, real people at the table who are going to bring real projects online and, you know, Dennis would be here, I think, doing great work no matter what, but this project and the ballpark is going to help to accelerate things, help to catalyze things, and we think that when a ballpark is in the right place, built by the right people, um, it can have tremendous public benefits for our region. So we think this deal is an example of how to do it right, and you know, now we're into uh, the execution phase of this. Yeah, well, you know, I think the business community, uh, early on, I know that there was some concern in some quarters of the Pawtucket Red Sox about you know, whether the business community would step up. And their question was they had a situation in Rhode Island where I think in AAA baseball, the corporate sponsors and business engagement was one of the highest in AAA. And really the business community stepped up, uh, led uh, by uh, a group of uh, people uh, like uh, Joe Salois, Mike Angelini, uh, and others uh, that said, look, we are going to step up. This is an opportunity that's baseball, but also an, an economic development project that is really once in a, in a generation for the city and the region. And so quickly, many of the companies came forward in terms of being the founding sponsors, led by the Polar, Polar uh, Beverages and the Crowley family who uh, came forward with the naming rights. So really, in a short period of time, I think it was 10 days from the first meeting to the follow-up meeting, we had... Uh, almost double the number of founding sponsors that Pawtucket had hoped. Uh, and I think that was 
one of the things that helps seal the deal. Tim is being appropriately diplomatic about some of our reservations. They were stated a little more um, bluntly. Um, one member of our team had actually said, uh, we think that the corporate community is the Achilles heel of Worcester. So Tim and Mike Angelini and uh, you know Joe Saloy, Karen Duffy, Norm Peters, Ed Russo, uh, Mark Fuller, they went, they brought us back. Yeah, I mean, a dozen plus initially within a week or two of our meeting. Um, and I think it was Mike Angelini who said to Larry, I don't want to hear about the Achilles heel anymore. The Achilles heel has been fixed. It's been repaired. The surgeon's been in. And so at last count, we're up to 22 founding partners, um, Polar as our naming rights and 21 others. Um, so that was, yeah, again, an example of this intersection between public, private, you know, political leadership, business leadership done in the right way. So let's talk a little bit about the... Um the plan and the design for the development and the park. Um, who are you guys working with and what are some important amenities or features that you want to see within the development? Dennis? So we're <clears throat> really blessed to be at the table with, with Larry and Janet Marie in particular and, uh, and their design team to you know, develop this not as a ballpark and then some development around the ballpark, but have the development integrated into the ballpark and the ballpark district. Um, we've, uh, we have a building that will sit right on top, you know, right over the left field wall. It will be an office building. Uh, there'll be uh, event-related retail in, on the ground floor of that building. There'll be a big roof deck that will be operated in conjunction with the team that will uh, be available to our tenants. Uh, our, our tenants will be able to look out their window and in, into the field and the you know the games and the events that are going on um, across the street we'll do um, all told we'll do about a million square feet of, of development we have a little bit of everything for a little bit of something for everyone we have that you know class a office building that will you know what, what I just talked about attached to the left field um, section of the ballpark we'll have a large format uh, commercial building that could be you know, a grocer or theater on the first couple levels and then some lab space above that. Uh, we'll have two types of hotels and co-located in a building. We'll have apartments. We, uh, we have a second phase of housing that could be student housing. Um, and then they'll have ground floor retail. We'll have parking uh, as well, but ground floor retail, you know, variety of types of uh, uh, restaurants and, and bars and other, you know, uh, retail entertainment type of uses. So the the idea is that you know it's true live work play that's right you know you can live there you can work there you can go to games there and it's uh, so we're really excited about you know uh, and it's all being designed as one big project which is really unique because I don't not sure that's ever really been done before. You know it's refreshing to hear uh, design playing such a key role as an architect led developer firm. Uh, Design has played a central role in our uh, efforts as well. And design creates value. It creates value for a community. It creates value for a project. And so often on these large-scale urban redevelopments like the ballpark that people forget that word. And it is the fact that it's central to the design is, uh, is accolades to the city and uh, accolades to the development team. So congratulations. And I think Larry's being modest because he's an architect himself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, we definitely, I think, have that design word at heart, Larry. It's, it's well said that, you know, these 
design principles can get lost sometimes in these processes. And I think, you know, uh, Larry Lucchino on our team, I think he might have been an artist in a past life or something because he really loves the design aspect of this. You know, really, I mean, we sat down with Dennis and his team a couple of weeks ago to talk about the left field building. What are the materials of the building? How does it complement the ballpark? How can they be, uh, you know, complementary and synergistic? And with Dennis, I think from the beginning, there's always been that openness of communication back and forth because, you know, we want to make sure that the ballpark complements the development really well and enhances the development. Um, we have a distinct, you know, family-friendly model of entertainment at our ballpark, and we want to make sure that the development suits that, you know, if Dennis was just some fly-by-night operator who said, you know, I want a, you know, a, a topless bar across the street from the ballpark, you know, we'd, we'd probably have some problems. And we've actually heard of teams and situations where that's happened, where they've had a real struggle working with the local community because you have people who just rush in and say, I'm putting up whatever uh, can make the most money or whatever is the easiest thing to do. And instead, there's been this real synergy between Dennis's team and our team where we want their input, they want our input, and this is really one grand vision, one holistic vision, not two distinct separate projects. So drilling down a little bit on how this is going to, or is working, the city is going to own the park? Correct, yeah. Long-term lease to... It's a city-owned ballpark uh, by the Worcester Redevelopment Authority. And somewhere along here, you mentioned, or maybe you told me outside of this this program, uh, that there'll be a number of... uh, Parks or playgrounds associated, public parks? That's one of the principles that we're working with. One of the design ideas is to have a park that is really, you know, we said earlier, more than a ballpark, but really a a park, an urban park, a a green park. You know, we don't have a ton of acreage, so I don't think it's going to be, you know, a a central park necessarily in the middle of Worcester, but it will have, I think, green elements and and green features that make it, um, you know, maybe in the mold of, uh, you know, a, a Forbes field or some of these classic old ballparks that you saw that really integrated well into neighborhoods, you know, Ebbets Field in Brooklyn or the Polo Grounds, you know, these were iconic um, parks. They weren't just ballparks, but they were parks. And so having greenery and having um, connections for walkability from different areas of the city um, is definitely an important principle for us here. Civic monument. Civic monument. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It's, it's a civic asset. It's a civic monument, I think, in many ways. So I also wanted to make sure we touched on um, the importance of meds and eds in Worcester um, and how that's coming into play with development. Well, you know, Dennis' foray into development in the city started with the redevelopment of the U.S. steel site, former U.S. steel site. And for 100 years, manufacturing carried Worcester and generations of families. And in the 60s and early 70s, as manufacturing uh, began to change, as uh, companies uh, weren't reinvesting. Uh, you know, Worcester, like a lot of industrial cities, saw uh, contraction, and that uh, you know created some economic dislocation. But serendipitously, in the city, we have nine colleges and universities, thirteen in the region, uh, and there was also a, a political fight that took place in the in the in the late sixties, early uh, late sixties, to create a state medical school and locate it in Worcester. And that complemented several smaller local hospitals at the time and really began the growth of the healthcare industry and higher ed has continued to grow. So in the last 25, 30 years, the economy's evolved. Higher ed, uh, healthcare is the largest employer, uh, major employer. Uh, we have uh, higher ed, number two, financial services, uh, companies like Hanover, 
uh, and uh, Unum, a number of banks headquartered in Worcester, uh, smaller regional banks, and then manufacturing still a strong base. So uh, Eds and Meds is a major piece, and they've spawned now these uh, IT technological innovation uh, sectors as well, which is a good sign for, for the future. All that growth in Meds and Eds needs housing uh, local and proximate uh, such to make it a make it work and uh, housing of all uh, that can serve all incomes, uh, both the higher end of the meds and eds uh, income spectrum as well as uh, the lower end, uh, which uh, certainly exists in, uh, in those areas. And uh, to the extent uh, we've been able to participate in doing that and other developers building housing in the city, it, I think it has uh, enabled uh, such vibrancy on the meds and eds because it is uh, cities uh, uh, seize up uh, when uh, the jobs are created, but the housing isn't, and uh, Lister's kept up with it in a in a fine way. Yeah, I, mean, I, I know I don't want to speak for for Larry Lucchino, but when the ownership group of John Henry, Tom Werner, and Larry were looking about you know options for potentially replacing Fenway or staying at Fenway back in the early two thousands, because people forget now that was a very questionable future for Fenway Park back then in 2002, 2003. Um, one of the factors, one of the things they noticed right away in the Fenway was the presence of meds and eds, having college students, having medical institutions, having that vibrant, you know, 18, 24-hour life and activity in the district. And that was, I think, one of the factors, among others, in their decision to stay at Fenway Park and not move down to the seaport here or out to the suburbs somewhere. They saw a vibrant urban area that had this life and activity and an educated workforce. Um, so when you look at, I think, some of the more successful major and minor league ballparks, I mentioned Durham, North Carolina earlier. They work with Duke very closely, and they have all types of incubator space and tech space around their ballpark. Um, so those can be, I think, really essential seeds in a neighborhood, and those can be, for a ball club at least, a great reason to commit to an area and be part of an area. So for one final question, um, obviously Worcester is booming, um, but what hurdles could you guys see coming up in the future and how can those be addressed to make sure that the positive growth continues? Well, you know, I think there, there's this economic momentum underway, but you want to ensure that all of the Worcester residents and Central Mass residents can participate in it. And that's why making sure industries like manufacturing still have a presence and opportunity. You're creating economic ladders. The housing is incredibly important. We still have more work to do on transportation improvements. So it's trying to create economic opportunity uh, uh, for all of kind of the residents of the area. And really many of the projects and, and the people at the table here have been instrumental in facilitating that, but we still have more work to do. And if I could add to that, I think that is critical. You look at the demographics broadly at Worcester, and there, it, is, it is not Boston. It is not Boston suburbs. So there's a lot of growth that needs to take place in order to allow the demographics to rise to a level that's comparable with the state. You know, there's a term being unprepared for success, and uh, that's not Worcester. Worcester is prepared for the success it's attained, and it's prepared for the success that will still come its way. Well, thank you all so much for joining us here on The Big Dig. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of The Big Dig is brought to you by Buildups in the Know. This new data analytics platform 
helps businesses and commercial real estate connect with new owners and new opportunities. Be sure to check out buildup.com, that's B-L-D-U-P.com for the latest real estate development and CRE news. Also visit naopma.org, that's N-A-I-O-P-M-A.org to learn more about joining the leading commercial real estate association in the Boston area.